0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617 629 3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Mossville, Louisiana is suing the federal government. The residents charge their human rights to a clean environment are being violated but this disorder in the court case
0: right hand does not know what the left hand is doing here because we've got the person in charge of environmental protection in the United States agreeing with the Mossville Human Rights Petition. And we've got others within the U.S. government saying it isn't so.
1: Also, the battle over Cape Wind, the nation's first offshore wind farm, takes a turn to the big screen. A new documentary chronicles the decade-long fight. We take a sneak preview.
2: We use the title Cape Spin for the double entendre, obviously, because the spin of the turbines, but also the political spin, the media spin. There's so much spin.
1: Oh boy, is there ever wind, spin, and a lot more this week on Living on Earth? Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Mossville, Louisiana, is one of the most polluted places in the nation. More than a dozen industrial plants spew millions of pounds of toxic chemicals a year into the environment. When the federal government failed to act, residents of Mossville sued the U.S. for not protecting their environmental human rights. Last year, the community, mostly African-American, caught a break when the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights made the historic decision to hear their case. Now, Mossville residents may have caught another legal break, as Living on Earth and Planet Harmony's Ike Shreeskandaraja reports.
4: Six years ago, Christine Bennett made her first trip to the nation's capital to file a human rights complaint against her government.
0: Being here in Washington, D.C., going to make a petition is one thing, but it's whether or not we're going to be heard is the most important thing. Will somebody do something about it or are we just wasting our time?
4: Bennett and her neighbors have been waiting a long time. The story of their rights not being protected goes back generations. Emancipated slaves settled the bayous of Mossville, Louisiana. They had land, but no voting rights to protect it. After World War II, plastics companies found little resistance to building factories in these disenfranchised black neighborhoods. Fourteen of those petrochemical plants ring the town today.
0: I'm living where my grandparents lived, and I am one of the fourth generations. But now, the place that was once so beautiful and so clean is now a dump.
4: Each year, the air is loaded with 4 million pounds of carcinogens, earning this place the nickname Cancer Alley. Government researchers have measured three times the national average of dioxin in the bodies of Mossville residents. They argued that there are no environmental justice laws on our books to protect America's most vulnerable communities. So that's the case they took to the Inter-American Commission, a last line of defense for human rights in the Western Hemisphere. The U.S. government fought this, arguing that the U.S. has plenty of environmental laws that protect its citizens. But last year, in an interview with Living on Earth, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Lisa Jackson, seemed to agree with the people of Mossville.
0: I think the Mossville case is a really interesting one because what the petitioners argue, as I understand it, is in order to get heard, they had to basically make a case that the laws of this country do not provide them an opportunity for redress. And it is true that at this point there are no environmental justice laws. There's nothing on the books that gives us the ability to do it. It was what
4: the community of Mossville had been waiting to hear, a high-ranking government official agreeing with the main argument in their case. Administrator Jackson is the first African-American EPA head, and she's from Louisiana. Since she took the job, she's made environmental justice a priority of her agency. But even apparent support from Administrator Jackson didn't put the human rights petition in the clear.
0: I think no one in Mossville operates under the assumption that everything will be great without struggle because that hasn't been their experience.
4: That's Monique Harden. She's the lawyer for the people of Mossville, and has been making the case that they have to go outside of the U.S. to resolve their human rights abuses. The State Department argues back that the citizens can still appeal within the American legal system. To harden, Administrator Jackson's comment seemed to bolster the Mossville case.
0: Her statement was just very positive and very affirming. And so when we read a few months later the brief that was filed by the U.S. government countering that, you know, we felt that, well, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing here because we've got the person in charge of environmental protection in the United States agreeing with the Mossville Human Rights Petition. And we've got others within the U.S. government saying it isn't so.
4: Hardin included Jackson's statement in briefs she filed to the commission last March. But the government hasn't responded. The EPA and the State Department both declined to talk to living on Earth as well. So we asked someone who advises on environmental human rights cases what this means. Barbara Johnston is a senior research fellow for the Center for Political Ecology in Santa Cruz, California. She says the government's silence speaks volumes.
5: I think there's probably a minor war occurring (laughs) all kinds of skirmishes over where our priorities are whether we are actually going to demonstrate that we indeed are a a nation that has great and huge concern for environmental justice, especially in cases of demonstrated environmental racism, versus our economic liability, because if the U.S. comes out with a petition that acknowledges its liability in this particular case, there is a very, 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 very long list of injured parties out there.
4: Which would make environmental justice a very, very, very expensive proposition. But environmental human rights lawyer Monique Harden says it may be expensive, but that would be the cost of living in a society that values all citizens and neighborhoods equally.
0: What so often happens in communities that are struggling for environmental justice is that they're in dialogue mode, but there's no remedy. And a favorable decision by the commission would create a different paradigm for what what governmental regulation of the environment should look like.
4: In the meantime, the Mossville case has already opened an avenue for Americans to resolve environmental human rights abuse. A Navajo group fighting a uranium mine in New Mexico has just filed their own human rights petition to the Inter-American Commission. And they cite the Mossville case as supporting their claim. For Living on Earth and Planet Harmony, I'm Ike Sreeskandaraja.
1: And be sure to check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. It pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Sunflowers soak up the sun's rays and grow gloriously tall, now, researchers in Japan are planting sunflowers to soak up radiation from the Fukushima nuclear disaster. The idea was tried back in the mid 1990s near the Chernobyl power plant meltdown. Soil scientist Michael Blaylock worked on that project. Now he's vice president of systems development at Eden Space Systems Corporation. Michael Blaylock, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So, sunflower plants and nuclear power plants, what's the connection? Well, the connection there is really that
6: sunflowers are good at taking up certain radioactive isotopes. And that's really the connection between the sunflowers and the the nuclear power plants that we've discovered is that some of the uh, fallout from the Chernobyl accident we were able to address through planting
1: sunflowers in the affected areas. So basically the plant just kind of grows and as it's growing, it's sucking the radiation out of the soil.
6: That's correct. Those radioisotopes mimic some of the plant nutrients that the plant takes up normally. And so the plant really doesn't distinguish between those radioactive isotopes and and some of the nutrients like potassium and and calcium that it takes up as a matter of course.
1: Well, you worked at Chernobyl back in the mid-1990s. Did it
6: work? It was very effective for the water. The soil is a little bit different story because uh, cesium in soil is a little bit tricky. Strontium in soil, it works very well for us, but uh, if you can't take both of them out, taking just the strontium doesn't necessarily get you to where you want to be if you leave the cesium around. So why is
1: uh, cesium harder to get out than strontium?
6: You know, cesium mimics potassium. The clay layers, on a very small scale, the atomic structure, they have what we call... a for lack of a better word, a cavity in between those clay layers. And the potassium fits very nicely into those cavities, and and that's the way that soils retain potassium. Well, cesium, being very similar to potassium, fits in those same cavities, and it becomes fixed in the soil, and it's very difficult for it to come out. Where strontium is very similar to calcium, calcium is is in a form that's very available to plants, Uh, we don't have that problem.
1: Well, they're trying this at Fukushima. You think it could actually work
6: there? It could, given the right set of circumstances. You know, one thing we found in Chernobyl is we came there a number of years after the fact. And so that gave uh, plenty of time for that cesium to become fixed in the soil. And it's going to be very dependent on the soil types. You know, soils that have very high uh, mica contents, uh, certain clays, are, are going to be very difficult to remove the cesium once that cesium gets fixed. But under the right set of circumstances, they could be effective in, in removing those uh, contaminants from the soil.
1: So which part of the plant stores the radioactivity?
6: You don't want to have to dig up roots. That's a very difficult process. It can be done, but it's much easier to harvest leaves and stems. So we focus our, our efforts on those plants that do a good job of transporting, translocating from roots to, to
1: shoots. Is the sunflower the best plant for this
6: Sunflower was attractive because it grows well. It produces a lot of biomass quickly. It doesn't take a lot of management to grow it uh, as compared to some other crops. It's adaptable to a lot of different climates. So I don't know that it is the best plant, but it is certainly one that meets the criteria
1: that we need. So when you harvest the plant, it's radioactive.
6: Yeah, the biomass or the harvested material would be radioactive.
1: Yeah, so what do you do then? How do you get rid of the radioactivity in in the plant?
6: Yeah, the real process here is what we're trying to do is concentrate that radioactivity from the soil, which is a fairly low concentration, to a much higher concentration in the plant material. You still have to dispose of that plant material, but you've moved that particular contaminant or radioactive isotope from uh, silica, aluminosilicate matrix in the soil, which is very difficult to deal with, to a carbon-based substance in the plant material. You've concentrated that, so you have a lot less material to dispose of, and you can leave that soil, which is a resource that's hard to replace, you can leave that soil in place and just remove the contaminant.
1: And the radiation doesn't kill the plant as this is happening?
6: Typically not. If they're high enough to where they're going to affect the plant growth, it's not going to be an area that's suitable for this type of approach.
1: I could see unexpected consequences from something like this. I mean, here you've got these sunflower plants, and the seeds dry, and birds eat the seeds, and then they fly off, and they're radioactive.
6: Yeah, that could be a risk. I mean, typically, when we perform this, we would always harvest plants before they seed out because the main idea is to harvest biomass. You want to produce as much vegetative material— as possible and once the plant starts producing seeds it flowers and start the seeds start forming it's not producing a lot more uh, vegetative matter to remove that contaminant so typically once the plant flowered we harvested and we would replant again we're not interested in producing seeds
1: what about the the hard nose question about money how, how much does this cost relative to other uh, technologies
6: Relative to other remediation technologies, it's not that expensive, but when you when you factor in their sampling and, and disposal of the material, it's certainly not free. But you know, on a, on a cost basis, as compared to the cost of storing uh, soil for a very long period of time, uh, very large quantities of soil, it's it's a very attractive option.
1: You know, there's something very special about sunflowers. I mean, they're beautiful, and there's something poetic, I think, going on here. Um because they're also an anti nuclear symbol, especially in Japan where you know, we're now almost ready to commemorate the, the anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki
6: yeah that is a uh, it is an interesting set of circumstances and uh, to see a field of plants out there growing in an area that previously was not vegetated and you'd be able to you know to harness nature to to do some of the things that uh, that we need to do to you know correct our mistakes. It is something that's very pleasant to look at and to see and and uh, it gives you you know uh, it's one of those touchy-feely things you feel really good about.
1: Michael Blaylock is vice president at Eden Space Systems Corporation. Mr. Blaylock, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Just ahead, not going with the flow. Critics try to put the kibosh on a transcontinental pipeline carrying crude. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's going to cost $13 billion to build a system of pipelines to carry oil from the tar sands of Alberta, Canada, to the Gulf Coast of Texas. The Canadian crude is thick and gooey, but it could help reduce U.S. reliance on Middle Eastern oil. Yet critics contend the cross-country pipeline could wreak environmental havoc. The White House will decide whether the project goes ahead, but not without the rest of Washington weighing in first. Living on Earth's Mitra reports.
7: The Obama administration says it will approve or deny the Keystone XL pipeline by the end of the year. But for some in Congress, that's not fast enough. A bill to force a decision by November 1st just passed the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. It faces a likely dead end in the Senate, but offered oil-friendly lawmakers like Republican Steve Scalise of Louisiana the opportunity to pressure the president.
6: If we don't agree to this, you know, because radicals, they don't like oil at all, so they I guess they're going to ride around on bicycles and that's going to get them where they need to be, we've got to live in reality. We've got Canada saying 700,000 barrels a day can come into America. That means we don't have to buy 700,000 barrels a day from Middle Eastern countries.
7: 700,000 barrels a day of oil so thick it doesn't flow naturally. To move it through a pipeline across six U.S. states, it has to be cooked with a lot of water and natural gas. By the time it comes out of the tailpipe of a car, its greenhouse gas emissions will be double or by some estimates as much as five times those of regular oil. Keystone XL could force the White House to pick between key priorities, cut imports of Middle Eastern oil, or wean the country off oil altogether to address the long-term threat of climate change. Climate activist Bill McKibben says it's important to block the project because not much else is being done to slow climate change.
8: And so one of the things we've got to do is identify those huge deposits of carbon that have to be kept safely in the ground. These Canadian tar sands are the second biggest pool of carbon on Earth. If we start burning them, it's essentially game over for the climate.
7: McKibben is leading protests at the White House in coming weeks to send the message that tapping the dirty Canadian fuel is immoral. He says about a thousand people plan to risk arrest, in part because they fear the process has been hijacked by powerful interests. Because the pipeline crosses an international border, the Department of State is charged with rendering the decision. Its initial favorable environmental impact statement was rejected by the EPA, and as it's worked on a new report, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has said publicly she's inclined to give the project a green light. McKibben notes that one of her chief campaign staffers was hired to lobby for TransCanada, the company that will build the pipeline
8: not would be my guess because he knows an unbelievable amount about oil pipelines, but more because they hope he knows enough about Hillary Clinton to
1: get his deal done.
7: As Alberta ramps up its lobbying efforts in Washington, its backup plan is unclear. A proposal to pump the oil to Canada's west coast has met opposition at home, and Energy Minister Ron Liepert says its oil sands would be landlocked without the Keystone pipeline. But Marty Durbin with the U.S. lobbying group, the American Petroleum Institute, says it's only a matter of time before Canada finds a buyer.
8: I don't think there's any question that Canada is going to produce the, this energy resource. They're not able to, to, you know, to provide that resource to the United States. You know, they certainly will be looking for markets elsewhere.
7: Durbin says that means the global climate would suffer anyway and American businesses would miss out. The pipeline would be a boon for oil refineries in the Gulf Coast. And Durbin says that would ripple into jobs and investments throughout the economy.
8: Refining is just the start. By getting that feedstock, you use the natural gas and, and, and oil to create the chemicals, the fertilizers, the plastics, uh, the medicines, the you know, you, you want, you know, wind turbines. You've got to have you know, natural gas and, and oil to create those materials.
7: But green groups worry that approving the Keystone XL pipeline will only thwart efforts to get off oil and that the project itself is a sign of desperation. To get to the deposits, Canada will have to strip mine millions of acres of its pristine boreal forest. Susan Casey-Lefkowitz watches international oil markets for the Natural Resources Defense Council.
5: The fact that we're going to more expense and being much more destructive in our search for oil should really sound a warning bell that it's time to get off oil. Now, while we actually have enough conventional resources, that we can do a good transition to clean energy.
7: Casey Lefkowitz says the prospect of hundreds of thousands of barrels of toxic oil bursting underground near American aquifers should also raise flags. Tar sands oil is particularly hard on pipes, she says, and leaks are common. This summer, the federal government shut down an existing TransCanada pipeline, saying its dozen leaks in just the past year harms life, property, and the environment. The House vote to push the White House on Keystone XL fell on the exact same day a year ago that the Enbridge pipeline broke. It poured tar sands oil into the Kalamazoo River in Michigan, a disaster still being cleaned up today. And even though that spill was in his home state, Congressman Fred Upton, the Republican chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, urged the president to endorse the new pipeline. He said while safety can be improved, the U.S. economy is in dire straits.
9: Most leaders in this situation would be searching for a project that would create jobs, help bring down gas prices, and yes, provide a stable and secure source of oil to replace imports from dangerous parts of the world. Our president is being handed such a project on a silver
10: platter.
7: But lawmakers in Congress will mostly sit on the sidelines in this fight. Unlike other controversial energy policies, the executive branch alone has the authority to open or close the tap on Canadian tar sands oil. The State Department's final environmental impact statement is expected in coming weeks. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington.
1: Coming up, mobilizing against cell phones that use minerals from war-torn areas. But first, this note on emerging science from Anne-Marie Singh.
11: Cow belches and flatulence produce large quantities of methane, a greenhouse gas 21 times more toxic than carbon dioxide. Now researchers have found that analyzing cow poop can provide valuable information about the amount of methane that's released into the atmosphere. Most sheep and other ruminant animals with four-chambered stomachs contain billions of microbes, which help them digest grass and hay. Some of these microbes produce a compound called archaeol, which is found in feces. While it's been relatively easy to calculate CO2 emissions caused by human activity, it's much harder to estimate the amount of methane emitted from livestock. Researchers from the UK and Ireland believe there was a correlation between the levels of archaeol in poop and methane released by the animal. To prove this, they devised an experiment. They collected poop samples from 12 steers to test how much archaeol was present. Some of the male cattle had diets consisting of fermented grass called silage. The others consumed a tasty mix of silage and dry food. The steers with the grass diet had higher levels of archaeol in their poop than the cattle which ate the silage mixture. The more archaeol there was in the poop, the more methane in the form of burps and flatulence was released by the animals. This study suggests that methane emissions can be regulated by controlling the diet of domestic livestock. And if further research confirms archaeol to be a reliable biomarker, then scientists can look to piles of poop for greener pastures. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Anne-Marie Sink.
1: There's fair trade Coffee... Fair trade chocolate, even fair trade clothing, products sourced by importers trying to guarantee fair pay and decent treatment for farmers and workers in developing countries. Well, now a Dutch team is applying the principles of the fair trade philosophy to mobile phones to combat what's called the conflict mineral trade. From the Deutsche Welle radio program Living Planet, Cynthia Taylor reports.
3: Hello? Hello? it's estimated that there are over 5 billion mobile phones in the whole world. And in several countries, the number of these devices exceeds the number of people. Frequently, the very beginning of a mobile phone's production chain is in Central Africa. There, some 300,000 people make their living by mining for the minerals that are used in the components of our phones. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the mining business has helped finance and fuel the country's ongoing conflict. Extraction is mainly controlled by rebels or the government's own military forces. Natalie Ankersmith is from the Dutch Institute for Southern Africa. Every party, whether it's the Congolese army or whether, our, whether it's the rebellions or the militias, they use the illegal trade in minerals to finance their well, there are human rights abuses. And especially the local population is uh, is victim of these abuses. And there are mass rapes of women and, and, and children in the local villages to make sure that these villages are loyal to a certain militia or a certain group of army people. And that's why the term blood mobiles has suddenly turned up in media.
12: When you, when you look at the, all the circuits... In your uh, telephone, um, they use copper for it. 40% of all the copper uh, reserves are in... uh in Congo, and cobalt as well. A lot of your cobalt comes from Congo, which is being used for your batteries.
3: That's Bas Van Abel, Creative Director at the Wag Society in Amsterdam. He's explaining to me where we can find minerals in our own mobile
12: phone. A lot of the, the stuff which is being used are, are minerals, and I, I, I think there's more than 20, 22 minerals used uh, average in every telephone. So you have to do a lot of reverse en- engineering because that's one of the problems, that, that phone companies don't give a list of the stuff they have in their phones and uh, that's also you know one of the things we we need to change that also the big phone builders and and production companies uh, uh, give insight into what they're using and also who they buy from
3: bass and natalie's organizations have joined forces to fight against the use of conflict minerals in electronics and that's how Fairphone was born. Just like the name suggests, it's an initiative that aims to produce the world's first ethical phone. According to Bass, the key to the project is not a new invention, but a new way of doing business.
12: The easiest part of this project would be creating a phone. Because phones are already created. Already, you know, The production process is there. The problem is that it's not, not transparent. And um, the, the working conditions and the fairness around it, that that's where the problem starts. So, if you want to make a fair phone, you have to use you have to change all the, the production for all these twenty two minerals.
3: But a change in production can also mean added costs, something that doesn't go down well in corporations. Nokia's good clean image has been severely impacted since the problems surrounding conflict minerals came to light but it still ranks as one of the most environmentally friendly companies in the sector and it has banned Congolese minerals in its production. And while critics and activists claim it still has a long way to go, spokesman Jürgen Teisman says the company is already producing
10: the fairest phone possible. No company can give a 100% guarantee that that there are no conflict minerals in their components, but uh, we don't allow our suppliers and their suppliers to source minerals uh, from conflict areas. One of the things that we as a company have done already, it's investing in R&D so that we can reduce the components that have these minerals in them, that we reduce them uh, from, for instance, uh, six components that were used in 2001 in a mobile phone to one or two components now.
3: Nokia says it also has a tagging system in place to ensure the origin of the minerals and that it audits its suppliers regularly. But it does admit it's a hard
10: process to track down properly. If you look at the process, um, the real challenge is in what happens between the mine and the smelter. Because once the minerals are smelted into metals, you cannot trace them anymore. So it's really important that, that you make sure that a control mechanism is in place between the mine and the and the act- actual smelter.
3: It is this initial stage of the production chain that Fairphone is now trying to tackle. They've recently travelled to the Congolese province of Katanga where cobalt is mined. Cobalt is an essential component for mobile phones batteries. They bought a bag of it directly from the mine workers, which they'll use later on the Fairphone. At Bass's office, his colleagues are also looking into the possibility of making the phone parts more replaceable, so that broken components can be replaced without throwing out a whole phone. The team doesn't know yet when the first Fairphone will hit the shelves, but they're optimistic that it will be sooner rather than later. Cynthia Taylor, Amsterdam.
1: Our report on the conflict, mineral trade, and mobile phones comes to us courtesy of the Deutsche Welle radio program, Living Planet. As former President Harry Truman once said, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Well, with the dog days of summer upon us, that's just what commentator Pat Priest of Athens, Georgia does.
5: When you say it's like an oven out there, when one baking hot day follows another, try baking outside using the free radiant heat of the sun. I'm cooking some beets this afternoon in my side yard in a solar cooker as I write this. I occasionally have to adjust the cooker slightly to orient it more squarely towards the sun. But other than that, it's simple. Working like a crock pot, you can leave all day while you're at work. No plug needed, no danger of fire. The only problem I've ever had is that someone ran over mine in the driveway once, causing an explosion of glass and garbanzos. Most sun ovens are shaped like the Elizabethan collar you put on your dog so it won't lick and scratch its wound. The shiny collar funnels the sun inward. The oven I use costs a little over a hundred bucks. It's a black enamel bowl that sits inside a rounded glass bottom and top, creating a greenhouse effect. I set the pot inside that reflective collar that cantilevers outward to surround the meal I'm cooking. It's dazzling. Really. Gotta wear shades. With my solar stove, I can cook without using electricity, which I avoid because of the CO2 emissions and the mountaintop removal associated with coal-fired power plants. And when I'm cooking outdoors, I don't have to use more energy still to cool my kitchen on these stifling hot days. I love to be outdoors working in my garden and catch a whiff of my dinner cooking. And the neat part about the company that makes My Solar Cooker is that a portion of its sales helps send these simple devices to developing countries. Fuel is expensive, and cooking with wood or dung is harmful to people's health. Solar cooking limits the deforestation that happens when poor people cut trees for wood stoves. So there and here, solar ovens make sense, sun-powered, and very cool.
1: Pat Priest produces a radio program called True South in Athens, Georgia. For more information on solar stoves, go to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, doing the do, catching water out of thin air in one of the driest places on the planet, and a new documentary spins, the offshore wind story. Stay tuned. It's Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore
8: Foundation, Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change, and the Sierra Club, helping students, workers, entrepreneurs, and families create a healthy and prosperous clean energy future online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth.
1: I'm Bruce Gellerman.
0: If you're fond of sand dunes and
1: salty air Lobster stew in an ocean view, winding roads and strong winds off the water beckon you, we've got just the place.
11: You
3: should have fallen in love with those Cape
12: Cod. Cape Cod That old
1: Cape Cod Cape Cod juts out like an arm in a prizefighter's fist into the Atlantic. Five miles off the southern shore, in Nantucket Sound, beyond the sun, sand, and surf, the wind blows steady and strong. For ten years, this vacation haven has been the scene of a knockdown, dragout drag-out fight over sighting the nation's first offshore wind farm. The Cape Wind Project, as it's called, has come out the winner, having received all of the necessary state and federal approvals. And the decade-long battle is now chronicled in the new documentary, Cape Spin, An American Power Struggle. Robbie Gemmel is producer and director of Cape Spin.
2: I actually started following the story in 2001 when I was in college. I was absolutely mesmerized that it has carried on this long and is still thriving more than ever.
1: Well, why? What is it about this project that so divides people?
2: I would say the scale of it and asking a community that has many generations on the Cape and Islands to embrace such a large-scale industrial project, when for the most part, despite all the development that has happened on the Cape, these communities have really gone out of their way to preserve the natural beauty and also the history of... The Cape and Islands.
1: When they were originally proposing this way back when, it was something like 170 towers and turbines, right?
2: Correct. It was 170, and then shortly thereafter, they downsized it to 130 turbines. Still takes up a lot of water. Yeah, that's correct. It is a fairly large footprint. The turbines themselves, I think, are 16 feet wide, but the entire wind farm is spread across 25 miles.
1: Uh, on the pro side, you've got the developer, Jim Gordon, who wants to build the wind farm.
12: The Cape and Islands, according to the American Lung Association, has the worst air quality in Massachusetts. So we thought that by developing a major wind power project, we could supply 75% of the Cape and Islands' electricity. With zero pollutant emissions, zero water consumption, and zero waste discharge. On the
1: other side, you've got the Alliance to Preserve Nantucket Sound, which was first financed by Bill Koch, who's the fossil fuel energy billionaire. I don't think he had any access, or at least he didn't do any interviews with Bill Koch.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Um, It's a rather interesting scenario to have a fossil fuel billionaire as the chairman of an environmental group fighting to protect a natural resource. Bill Koch has been completely unresponsive to doing an interview or talking to us in any capacity. I must say the proponents of the wind farm really welcomed us with open arms and were eager to jump in front of our cameras. The opposition was much more challenging to navigate But eventually, they definitely let us in and trusted that we were doing an objective documentary.
1: This project has really created some very strange bedfellows. You've got Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, who opposes it.
8: The interests of uh, our state have been basically submerged for a special interest developer. We're going to find out that taxpayers are going to pay... $800 million to this developer. They'll get money that they won't be able to
1: count. And Senator Ted Stevens from Alaska, he opposed it.
2: Senator Kennedy was clearly the preeminent senator fighting Alaskan uh, oil drilling, which Ted Stevens had been wanting to push through for a decade. So for them to become buddies in this fight was quite bizarre, but it was obvious why and how they were doing it, because the Alaskan senators were working on Coast Guard legislation, which was very convenient to try to slip riders into to kill the wind farm.
1: There's a part of the film where you've got one of the lobbyists who's working uh, to support the project, and he talks about, well, NIMBY, not in my backyard.
8: Not here, and not there, and not over here, and certainly not
4: in my backyard. First of all, it's five and a half miles out into the Atlantic Ocean, and these people who say, not in my backyard, it begs the question how big is their f- backyard? <laughs>
2: So that's obviously a very popular environmental term and slogan that's been the crux of many environmental battles. Interestingly enough, most of them have been fighting fossil fuel power plants and what a lot of people refer to as dirty energy. So to have that applied to a renewable energy project may be a first. Probably
1: the most powerful scene for me in the movie is the um, mountaintop removal, the coal mining, where they're blowing up the tops of these mountains in, in Virginia, West Virginia. Why did you include them?
2: Well, for one, I mean, I think it's really important for people to keep in mind where our energy comes from when we turn on the light switch. But it wasn't even a stretch to include that because those people were coming to the hearings on the capes, begging people to understand what they're going through. And they were obviously supporting the wind farm.
13: In October of 2001, a giant slurry impoundment, 72 acres of toxic coal sludge, failed. Everything in it died. 309 million gallons of toxic sludge, and I bet nobody in here heard about it because the folks in Appalachia are expendable. And we're tired of bearing the burden of everybody's energy use.
2: They were holding up pictures and telling stories of rocks rolling through their homes and killing three-year-olds and the mudslides that were filling their rivers of coal sludge. So it's a pretty gut-wrenching picture to understand what's going on down there to supply our country with energy.
13: I'm sorry, I, I, I do have some sympathy for those who are concerned about their view, but come and see the viewsheds and how they've been despoiled in Appalachia. There
7: ain't no doubt I love this love. You know,
1: for something so serious, your film has a lot of funny scenes in it.
2: This controversy has divided families and the community, and we felt that the community really needed to feel some levity out of this controversy. And both sides are incredibly brilliant, passionate, and very funny characters. And what they've done to fight both for and against it is just absolutely mesmerizing, hilarious at times, gut-wrenching, sad. So we kind of went out of our way to try to have as much fun with it as we could.
1: You must have had fun uh, choosing the music. There's a lot of music in this.
2: Yeah, we've been trying to go with kind of an Americana theme because we do want to use this story to kind of broaden out into the bigger picture and push off of this controversy and use the lessons learned to help people navigate future energy crises. The piece of music that I particularly
1: like, and I don't like this song, but I like the way you used it, is the old, I think, Blood, Sweat and Tears song, uh, Spinning Wheel
2: right yeah it's uh obviously such a great fit for us we use the title cape spin for the double entendre obviously because the spin of the turbines but also the political spin the media spin there's so much spin so when we uh came up with that song we were pretty excited to integrate it into the film think
8: back on how favorable the boston globe has been to cape wind
0: I mean, newspaper got their sort of uh, peg by either side. Someone is waiting just for you.
8: Editorials were absurd. They were informed by nothing but, so far as I could tell, the views, the friendships, the prejudices of the editor at that time and the publisher.
1: Did you ever count how many edits you made in this? How many fast cuts? <laughs>
2: Uh, we have over 550 hours of footage that we've been whittling down to 90 minutes for the past two and a half years. So it's been quite a beast. And
1: you use it to basically kind of put the politics in juxtaposition. It keeps on going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth.
2: Yeah, there's just so many bizarre approaches and angles to pushing this project forward and also to killing it and the way people have collaborated from so many different camps has been really, really fascinating to witness and understand and enlightening, actually, in terms of understanding how politics works and how large-scale energy projects get built and get squashed. When you were making
1: this film... Did you find yourself at one point saying, "Hey, yeah, I really support the project," and then turning around saying, "Ah, oh, I really am against the project"?
2: Oh, constantly. My main arc was um, I first learned about the project when I was a sophomore in college, and then I followed it for several years when I was pitching it to many different companies. And throughout that phase, I really thought it should happen. And then I ended up being a mate on a fishing boat in Nantucket to really immerse myself in the community. And then I did start to understand why people cared so much about protecting N- Nantucket Sound. And in the end, I guess it's just going to be really interesting to see what happens. So is it over? I definitely would not say it's over. The proponents are not backing down. There are still a few lawsuits pending. Cape Wind and the proponents claim none of them would be able to stop them from moving forward. I'm sure if it is built, the proponents will be going out of their way to find and highlight every single thing that's wrong with it. So I I don't think this is going away anytime soon. Well, the problem is, are you going to go away? Uh, You know, are you (laughs) going to continue to follow the project or are you going to stop filming or or what? I more or less told myself a year ago that this is probably a lifelong endeavor I'm going to be involved with in some capacity. (laughs) Well, Robbie, thank you so very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
12: Robbie
1: Gimmel is producer and director of Cape Spin, an American Power Struggle. There will be a sneak preview of the documentary on Martha's Vineyard on August 2nd. Now from wind to fog. An exhibit called The Fog Garden opens this week at the Center for Art Plus Environment in Reno, Nevada. It's a collection of scale models of fog catchers, devices designed to harvest mist in the driest place on the planet, the Atacama Desert along the northern coast of Chile. Pilar Saraceta, the director of the Atacama Desert Center, is an expert in catching fog.
9: It's like when you are in the fog and you have uh, little droplets in your hair Mm
1: -hmm.
9: or in the sweater many times. You can see that. So this is the same idea. And what we use is mosquito mesh, nylon threads, to stop the wind. How
1: big are these fog catchers?
9: You have to think it's something like um, Uh, Uh,
1: highway billboards. They're the size of highway billboards?
9: (laughs) Drink (laughs) Coca-Cola. And we had a, a little town, 300 people had water from fog for around 8 to 10 years with fog collectors. Uh, And the collectors were in the mountain uh, around 600 meters of altitude. And by a tube, uh, it went down and the water was distributed. So each house had a tap and they could open the tap and they would have fog water in their hands.
1: So let me get this right. You've got the fog rolls in from the ocean Right. And then you've got the desert, and you've got these mountains, and the mountains are where you mount your fog catcher. Right. Exactly. And then you take that water that you capture, and you kind of pipe it down to where you need it. Exactly. How well does it work? It works very well. Um,
9: You can have, for example, in this village that I am telling you, there was a lot of fog almost every day. Usually five or six days in a week, you would have a fog. And that village would receive one truck of 10,000 liters once a week. And when they had the fog collectors, we had the equivalent of one truck a day. So it works very well.
1: Well, Pilar, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Bruce. Pilar Saraceda is the director of the Atacama Desert Center. Fog Garden, an exhibit featuring scale models of their fog catchers, opens this week at the Center for Art Plus Environment in Reno, Nevada. Today's bird note takes us to the U.S. West and profiles a bird that delights many who hike the region's canyons.
13: Here's Mary McCann. A torrent of shrill notes ricochets off the sheer stone walls of a western canyon. A pair of white-throated swifts careens by at high speed, revealing boldly patterned bodies. They twist and turn sailing through the air on black scimitar-shaped wings spanning 15 inches. Dashing headlong across the canyon toward an unyielding wall, the birds disappear at the last second into a slender crevice. This swift is aptly named, and doubly so. Flying at tremendous speed, the white-throated swift is indeed swift, among the fastest of all birds. And its lyrical, scientific name suits it perfectly. Aronautes Saxitalis, sailor of the air who dwells in the rocks. Swifts leave the air only to nest or roost in a cavity. You'll never see one perched. They do everything else while airborne. Ornithologist Percy Tavener said of them, when mating, a pair meet high in the air, cling together as though embracing for a moment, drop down hundreds of feet, then separate and catch themselves on their wings.
1: Mary McCann of BirdNote. For some great photos, swoop over to our website, LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, the health effects of the deepwater oil disaster.
6: I worked 60 days on the front line for
13: BP out here. I'm sick today. Nobody wants to take care of me. We are very, very ill. And there's a very good chance now that I won't get to see my grandbabies.
1: Many sick Gulf residents blame the BP oil spill for their symptoms. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week deep under the sea in the company of a haddock. I know it sounds like a Harley, but this actually is the call of a spawning male haddock courting a female. Haddock produced this sound by contracting specialized drumming muscles that cause their swim bladder to vibrate. As the muscle contractions get faster, the drumming turns into a continuous humming noise. Who knew? And how could you possibly look the fish in the eye now? Professor A.D. Hawkins recorded this particular haddock with a hydrophone in Aberdeen, Scotland, for the British Library CD, Sounds of the Deep. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lovett, Helen Palmer, and Jessica Lee Smith. With help from Sarah Hawkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. And congrats to Jeff Young. He's going to be a jolly good fellow at Harvard's Neiman Fellowship Program. Knock their scarlet socks off, Jeff. Our interns are Daniel Gross, Stephanie McPherson, and Anne-Marie Singh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
8: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and PAX World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.